Welcome to The Truth Simply Put, the teaching broadcast vehicle of the Basilea Commission. On today's teaching by Alexander Victor, God's Word, rightly divided in the light of Christ, who is the central theme of the entire scriptures, will come with simplicity, precision, clarity, and power to instruct, admonish, edify, and build you up into the full measure of the stature of Christ. Now, let's dive straight in. We believe what you believe. We refuse to allow anything or anyone alter our conviction. There's nothing no one believes about us that makes us that thing if you have not said so. Lamentations 3 38 Somewhere there. 37, just a verse before. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? So it doesn't matter what people call you. I'm sure when you were a kid, you'll fight at someone when they called you something or called your mother something or called your father something and you felt it was up to you to defend their honor and you say things like you can say whatever you want to say to me but don't call my mother this <laughs> if you bring my mother into this and we always felt it was up to us to defend our the honor of the ones we love even if we let them trample upon ours. And even sometimes you would even pick the insults that you would take. You can call me foolish, but don't call me stupid. <laughs> you can call me stupid, but don't say my head is not correct. I would have taken anything he said, but he called me a goat. And the truth of the matter is, even though you felt you needed to defend that, you didn't become a goat. Because the person that said you were a goat had no power to make you a goat out of you. How many of you have been called a witch before? So how many of you became witches because you were called a witch? So if you don't even know the first step, it was last Sunday you even heard some tricks. <laughs> some tricks of the trade. And some of you have been called prostitutes. Whores. Loose boys. Never amount to anything. So people can call you whatever they want to call you. I saw something that a bishop posted this morning and I, I wrote it down. It was pretty interesting. And it says, Never waste your time trying to ex explain who you are 
to people who are committed to misunderstanding you. I think that's profound. Never waste your time trying to explain who you are to people who are committed. There's people whom you will never impress. Just because you are you. And the sooner you understand that, the better for you. There's people that you will never, 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 never impress. They will always be offended at you. That's why the worst place for you to be is the place where you think that everybody likes you. You would be a politician who is terrible at politics. Because even politicians know their enemies. They will meet at the airport and pose for a photo opportunity, but they know that we are going to kill each other. By the time you feel you're cool with everybody, you're a terrible politician. There's people that are committed to never believing anything you say is right. Nothing can ever come from you that will convince them otherwise. You're just not enough. And so such people don't even give you a chance to explain. And even if they give you a chance, it's just... But whatever you say won't change anything. Thank God, God, no be man, oh. I say forever. Thank God, God, no be man, oh. I say forever. Because imagine if God changed over you to suit every child of God's opinion of you. I'm not talking unbelievers. Children of God. I don't think red will be the only color. But who is he that saith a thing? And it comes to pass if the Lord has not said so. So when we sing, I know I am who you say I am. I'm chosen. Not forsaken. How many of you grew up in a home that had other siblings? Yeah, you have other siblings, only child. It's not very cute to be only child. You had at least two or three other siblings. Put your hand down. How many of you remember the really naughty, bullish one? If it was not you. If it was you, put your hand up. Okay, let's let's even start with you. If it was you, put your hand up. You were naughty, you were bullish, you were cunning, you were witty. You would do something and set up your other sibling. Yeah? Yeah. And you would be comfortable watching your dad beat the crap out of that sibling. No, it was you, right? Okay. Now, how many of you had it happen to you? You, you? you know that other sibling that did it to you. You know how many times you were set up? And you're... Yeah? So, you know that your sibling that was evil. Did your parents pay that sibling's fees? 
did your parents buy for that sibling what they bought for you? Were you angry once or twice when they got what they got? I'm trying to be modest, right? Say once or twice. Some of you lived in anger against that sibling. And sometimes you watch your dad touch that sibling's head and smile at them and tell them, well done. And while the child is speaking, looking at your dad, they will look at you and make a face or, or stick out their tongue at you. And turn and cuddle daddy or cuddle uncle or cuddle auntie. But all through that moment of your tribulation, your evil sibling remained your father's child. All your hate didn't translate to that child being orphaned simply because of what they did to you. You prayed and wished them dead. Say the truth. Who are those people? Yes. You honestly wish that your car would jam your brother. And yet, to your utter chagrin, you wake up in the morning and they are alive and well. So if scripture says that he causes the sun to shine on the just and the unjust and the rain to fall on the wicked and the righteous, how will there then be a segregation within his family? You are who he says you are. You are who he says. And we'll be dealing with that today. We'll be dealing with how grave it is. You know, the one... One of the worst things you can do is to walk in guilt. Because guilt for a believer is the worst insult you can put on the cross of Jesus. You see that the guilt is not about your emotions. Guilt is about you making God a liar. Guilt is similar to the unbelief for which people will perish eternally. Yes, you see, you see, you see it today. Walking in guilt is the unbelief that will make people lose eternity with God. Not only is it dangerous, it is deathly. It has eternal consequences for you to walk in guilt. You're shocked, right? We believe what you believe, God. God believed something. You refuse to believe it. When it is his believing by which you are saved. How then are you saved? Hold on. Are you saved? How are you saved if you disbelieve what God believes by which you are saved? Because you are saved by grace through faith. So if there's anything that can cost a believer eternal security is guilt, doubt, and unbelief. Final verdict. Not guilty. That's the title of our conversation today. 
In banking, there is um, a, term, a term known as a bad debt. A bad debt or a bad loan or sometimes it's called an uncollectible account expense. So over time, maybe at the end of a fiscal year in, in, in banking, microfinance banks, um, you know, lending societies, they do a collation of how much debt has been, has been given out, how much loans, and how much of them have gone into default because the customers are unable to pay back despite all their attempts to get them to pay. For instance, there's companies that specialize in buying bad debts and chasing you until you pay. Yes. People make a lot of money from it. So you hear... If you watch reality TV shows, you hear the repo man or the repossession man. So those repo guys actually buy the files of bad debts. So you took a vehicle from a company that you paid 10 or 20% as a down payment. You're supposed to pay a particular amount every month, including um, a little bit of, of a commission. And then you default and they write you multiple letters, you know, and you're not paying the debt, you're not returning the vehicle, and the vehicle is reducing in value because you're using it and you're not paying for it. So even if they took it back from you, they're, just, they're still running at a loss. So these repo guys come and buy the debt off of the company because they are nastier than the company and they have time to chase you down to the ends of the earth to get the car or get you to pay. Meanwhile, the company is just interested in doing some more business and hoping that they don't get into more bad debt maybe selling for cash or selling for bank finances or something like that. They don't have time to leave the thing like Saul left the kingdom and starts chasing David around the wilderness for 13 years. So these guys feel like it's not, you know, it's bad market, but it's people that specialize in buying the bad markets because all they have time to do is to run around the country chasing you down to the ends of the earth and you must pay. Those are the repo guys. So the repo guys catch you. They're not negotiating. They're going to clamp your vehicle. They're going to call their truck. They're going to tow it. They're going to smash it if you don't want to pay because they have a right. They've bought it. Does that make sense? So even if they don't get the money back, they're not losing anything. They will smash the car. And by the time you're paying the repo man, you're paying the repo man with a lot because the repo man is the equivalent of a loan shark. You're paying him almost 100% more than you would have paid the guy that you owed the debt in the first place. A belief just also buys the thing and it starts to write you a letter. For every letter he writes, he will charge you 100 pounds. Every letter he writes to you, reminding you that you have not paid this bill, you're going to pay 100 pounds. And so all he enjoys doing is sending you like two letters a week. Yeah, send you two letters. He sends you letters. Send you letters. For every letter he sends you, he charges an administrative fee for sending you that letter. And then he charges you double if he knocks on your door. Oh, yes. And the day a bailiff knocks on your door and you open the door and the bailiff goes in, you're finished. Yeah, so people actually, because once you open the door, the bailiff puts one leg in the door. Because if he smashes his leg with the door, you're dead. Yeah. So once his leg is in the door, that leg is not coming out until you let him in or pay what you owe. Because when you let him in, he's going to be in there until everything that he can lay hold of is taken from you. Yes, yes, sir. He has a right to do so. Yes, sir. It's a court belief. Yes, sir. Once, he's en- once he enters your apartment, he just sits and makes himself comfortable. 
And he will call these guys and come and claim whatever they need to claim in lieu of the debt. Or you will bring that money from where you hid it and pay the bailiff. So certain companies, after doing all of that involving bailiffs, sometimes the bailiffs are not successful. So the bailiffs then return the file to the original creditor and say, we've tried everything. This particular guy. So, I mean, this is bad business. They'll try a worse or more nasty bailiff or a more nasty repo guy. And they do all of that. It still doesn't work. They are forced to cut their losses and call that off as a bad debt or as an uncollectible expense account. We are not going to recover this one. We have done everything in our power and, okay, this time around we must admit we lost. It's happened to me before. I don't know if it's happened to you before. I've had to let go of debts that are just, just bad market. Especially in church where you can't worship you can't think straight. You see somebody worshiping, you are angry. Because you know they're lying. They took something from you and they did not pay. How can they be so sincere? It's beautiful though how God doesn't measure our worship according to those parameters. You know, but as you grow in your own wisdom, you get yourself to the point where you also realize it's healthier for you and your sanity to let those debts go. Now, if you're the one that is hoping that you keep getting into debt and then the people will get frustrated and let you go, you're the witch we talked about last week. Yes, sir. You're the very witch we talked about. Because that is, that is you not discerning the Lord's body. As you deliberately causing harm, you take a product and you know you won't pay. And you know that if you went into spa, those guys that are always nice to you will rough handle you if they found a product on you that you didn't pay for. Those mall cops, those guys that are just there in the shopping mall, because they're looking for adventure. So every day that you come to the mall, and behave well, this, the mall security are disappointed. Do you, do you realize that? Yeah. So by the time you go to the mall and finish and the mall cops don't get any action, they're upset. That's a very boring day. But once they catch you, then God is good. <laughs> And so a bad debt, after a while, they just give up. Uh, you know what, just, just, just let it go. And you collect something, and you know you have no intention of paying. You think you're smart. Let me promise you prophetically. Yeah. You will meet somebody that you will do that to. And it will be the last time you get the opportunity to do it. Because there's no monopoly on evil. Yeah, no, but you bad pass. And so you, you think you get away with it in church, and, and then one day you get the impunity to try it somewhere with somebody. You have not met people that would drag you all across social media until you pay them. It happened recently. Some actress or something 
And she kept, you know, very big and posting all this great stuff. And somebody now came and post, posted all these screenshots of 100K. I think a phone, a phone that she bought. And she paid 70 grand for. And she was 100K remaining. And she did not pay. And she kept dodging and dragging the guy. The guy just took all the screenshots and posted on Instagram. Instantly, she paid. The guy came back and posted the screenshots on Instagram. He said, thank you, Instagram family. She has paid. So that means this person had the capacity to pay all along, but was trying to be the smarter one. So if you're, if you're in that category where you think they will always, they will always cancel it, you're going to be in trouble shortly. So a bad debt is unrecoverable, so it's written off. Hmm? Yeah. So ultimately, unrecoverable debts are written off. Because the, the creditor can't deal anymore. Or you also have a scenario of a, an act of benevolence or an act of goodwill. Where the person knows that you're supposed to pay. But then just decides out of the goodness of their heart to let you off. In fact, we have turned it into prayer points in church. Debt cancellation. Now, it does happen. I've, I've canceled debts just, just out of the goodness of my heart. Matthew 18 gives you an example of a benevolent act. It didn't end well, which is instructive for us. But it gives you an, an, an impression, an illustration of acts of benevolence. We've looked at a bad debt, right? Uncollectible account expense. Unrecoverable, so it's, you know what, just, ah, I've just given up. Matthew 18, 23 through 25. Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. You see that now, right? And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000. Switch to NLT will show you what 10,000 talents was equivalent to. In them days. Millions. Of dollars. Keep going. But as he was not able to pay. Bad debt. His master commanded that he be sold. He. Be sold. (laughs) With his wife. And children. And all that he had. And that payment be made. And I'm very sure if you're not rich. Because <laughs> from the behavior of this guy, I don't think he was worth more than $2,000. Because <laughs> for you to be worth money, you must have good character. Yeah. <laughs> this guy didn't have character at all. So he would have sold very cheap. But it's interesting. His master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children. Imagine them on the auction stand. <laughs> Family for sale. Bad debt. <laughs> Who started up at $10,000, $10,000, can I hear $10,000, $10,000, $10,000, and then over there, okay, 10 and a half, 10 and a half, 10 and a half, going on over here, you know. And then at the end of the day, be like, okay, $100,000 going once. <laughs> and twice. So, to the guy with the rasta hair over there. 
and that payment be made in 26. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. That's benevolence. Released him and forgave the debt. So not only was he and his family not sold and all that he had, even the debt, the millions of dollars debt was discharged. Forgive him the debt. Uh, unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. 28. Go back to New King James, just um, NLT rather, for, for the same perspective. How much was this guy owing? Millions of dollars, right? NLT. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Yeah, that's his own worth. And he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. But you had just been forgiven millions of dollars. And this is what's happening in the church today. You've been forgiven so much by the grace of Jesus. Somebody else falls into your trap, you squeeze the life out of them. And you withhold what you have enjoyed. And he grabbed him by the throat and said, pay what you owe, pay it now. And this is just coming out of the presence of the master where you just received forgiveness and demanded instant payment. Matthew 18, now 29. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when the other servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgive you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? 35 on the last verse for this text. And it's 34 rather. And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he now should pay all that was due to him. So he re brought back into reckoning his millions of dollars debt. 35. And then Jesus says, so my heavenly father also will do to you. If each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. You'll be tortured until you pay. You know what that means? It means that you will be cut off from the grace of God. To withhold forgiveness that you received is to despise the grace of God. Which means you have not received it. Because it's not possible that you received it and withheld it. If you can withhold it, you didn't receive it, you generated it. You manufactured it, that's why you can regulate it. So Heavenly Father will do the same to you if you do not forgive. Why have you received forgiveness? Have you received forgiveness? How then are you able to withhold it? What is a few thousand dollars that somebody owes you compared to millions that you owed and were forgiven and discharged? You weren't even given time to pay. It was written off. Two scenarios we see here for what is owed. A bad debt, an act of benevolence. 
That brings us into the doctrine of original and inherited sin. God created Adam as mankind, right? Adam, ha, Adam. Male and female created he them. He created Adam as the prototype. The one from whom everybody coming will come in the same order. Yes? Yes, sir. Romans 5 and 14. I've warned you when we're teaching. <laughs> Open your heart. You don't know it. Yes, sir. Uh, layer upon layer. Yes, sir. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. This is important because there's a crop of people today that are teaching that the concept of original sin is false. I've addressed that already in this house. There's a crop of New Testament teachers that are teaching that we are not, well, we were not sinners because of Adam's fall. We were sinners because of our unbelief. And they don't even have a clue what unbelief is. You'll find out today. Because if Adam's sin was not imputed to us, Adam's righteousness cannot be imputed to us. That's a very dangerous suggestion to make. For he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could become. But we didn't inherit Adam's sin. Then we can't inherit Jesus' righteousness. If we became sinners apart from Adam, it suggests we can become righteous apart from Jesus. Ha. That's dangerous. So look at Romans 5.14 and look at it in a modern translation, NLT, TPT. It will open up better for us to understand. Romans 5.14. Still everyone died from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Everyone, including those who did not disobey an explicit commandment of God as Adam did. Now, Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ who was yet to come. Very clear. Show show the TPT, Romans 5.14. Yet, death reigned as king from Adam to Moses, even though they hadn't broken a command the way Adam had. Because he was a prototype. Once he was corrupted, everyone he gave birth to will be as corrupted as he was. I mean, there's people, I have dealt with people who were born HIV positive. Hepatitis B. People have been born with it. And I struggle to take seriously people who reduce God's ability or the ability of divine things but they believe in science. We take one look at you and we know you look like your father or your mother. Spitting image. Somebody is HIV positive, they give birth. Somebody has a particular genotype, they give birth, and the combination of that and another give, give birth to someone with a similar genotype. But no, Adam could not have transmitted his sin. And these are the same people that argue about being logical. And, this is, and they're, they're the most illogical. Or at least they are 
selectively logical. So what is so difficult to understand about Adam giving birth to people who are as corrupt as he had become? His scripture is plausible. And it's scientifically possible. Yes? So Adam sinned. We all sinned. Because we were in the prototype when the prototype sinned. We all died. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. I love this, this verse. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. See that first line? For as in Adam, all die. The first line is important to accept before you can start to look about in Christ. And <laughs> shall all be made alive. Because you can't jump and say in Christ we are made alive while we are refuting the fact that in Adam we all die. In Adam, he all die. Adam was, Adam was given so that in him all would die. Because Adam wasn't the savior. And God already knew it's a finished game before he began to play it. There would be no one to save. It will not be called redemption. Colossians 2.13. I'm just trying to set the premise. And you being dead in your trespasses with Adam. In Adam. He has made a life together with him. Having forgiven you all your trespasses. So we inherited Adam's sin. We inherited Adam's sinful nature. Yes? The deeds and the tendencies. We inherited all of it. Psalm 51 and 5. Psalm 51 and 5. <laughs> Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I sat physically, heard the pastor preach, and said, David's mother was a prostitute. Because she said she conceived David in sin. <laughs> in other words, she was sinning when she got pregnant for him. And that sin had to be the sin of Adultery. So David's mother was committing adultery. God, the Lord showed him. Mm. But that's not what that scripture means. And before I even talk about it, maybe we should see it in, a, in a, another translation. For I was born, this NLT, for I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me, from the moment my mother conceived me, show us, Others, tippity, I have been out of step with you for a long time. In the wrong since before I was born. Mm -hmm. Tippity, amplified. I was brought forth in a state of wickedness. In sin, my mother conceived me and from my beginning, I too was sinful. Lord, I have been a sinner from birth from the moment my mother conceived me. It's not on the mother. It wasn't what she was doing. It's the fact that we were all already compromised. Does that make sense? So we inherited Adam's sinful nature and tendencies, Psalm 58 and 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, 
speaking lies. That's why that baby cries and sends you the wrong signals. Have you noticed? The baby just cries for no, you think the baby has done a poo or done a wee. The baby just cried to wake you up for no reason. Whoever has trained a newborn baby how to bite a nipple in anger. What manual did that kid read? I said, okay, okay, wait, it'll happen to you, don't worry. Ask your mom. You know some things you say, you have not experienced it yet. Who taught the child how to cry for what they want, regardless of what time of the day it is? Annoying bundles of joy. <laughs> Soon as they are born, they start to tell lies. I didn't say it. Did you see it in scriptures? Ephesians 2 3. Go back to Psalm 58. Let's just see it in, in the more in other modern translations. The wicked crawl from the wrong side of the cradle. Their first word out of the womb. I wonder why a baby doesn't come out laughing. Come out crying. You're really so angry. And because of our falling nature, we don't trust that baby until the baby cries. Have you noticed? Not, not until the baby smiles. Oh, welcome, until the baby laughs. No. We are all animals. We are all wicked. You have joined us. Cry. Have you cried? Hey, hey! Now you are welcome. Let the games begin. Show us a couple more. Translations, 58 and 3, Psalm 58 and 3. Wicked wanderers, even from the womb, that's who you are. Lying with your words, your teaching. It's poison. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These go astray from birth. Speaking lies, even twisted partial truths. From the womb. The average human being born is a very hopeless case. Because we inherited an, a nature from Adam. Ephesians 2.3. Ephesians 2.3. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Look at this line. And we were by nature, what? By nature. Naughty by nature. By nature, children of wrath. You see it in the TPT or the NLT, Ephesians 2 and 3. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, by our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. The moment you were born, God wants to kill you. Or more like needs to kill you. God's response to sin. It's not mercy. God's mercy to sin is not mercy. It's your sin is not a bad debt that he will excuse. You're wondering, those of you that are wondering why I started the teaching with talking about bad debts. Benevolent act. No, your sin is not the kind of bad debt that you chase and chase and chase and chase. Okay, you know. Joe, 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 keep it. God is good. Oh, wait, that's me. I'm good. No. Romans 3, 23. 
Oh, I've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. So in our nature, there was no capacity for spiritual good in the eyes of God. Romans 7 and 18. I know that in me. Romans 7 18. I know that in me. Uh, this, this verse is nice in King James. KJV. I know that in me dwelleth nothing good. For to will, the desire is present with me. But how to perform it? I find not. I, I want to do good, but I don't have the capacity to do it. Because in me dwells nothing good. Give us TPT or the NLT. Romans 7 18. For I know that nothing good lives within the flesh of my fallen humanity. The longings to do what is right are within me, but willpower is not enough to accomplish it. NLT. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what's right, but I can't. So in our nature, there was no capacity for spiritual good. In our actions, there was no capacity to please God. Romans 8.8. 8. In our actions, there's no capacity to please God. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 2.1 and 2. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons, disobedience. Isaiah 64 and 6. In our actions, there was no capacity to please God. This is not even you thinking, oh, I've messed up, I've offended God. This is God being persuaded that nothing you do can please him. Isaiah 64 and 6. But we all, we are all like an unclean thing. New King James. And all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf. And our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We are all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness, actually all our righteousnesses, are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. So in our actions, we can't please God. By inheritance, we are sinful. That's the legacy Adam gave us. Psalm 14 and 3. Psalm 14 and 3. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No. Not one. Psalm 143 and 2. <laughs> not one. There's not, not a single person can please God on his own terms. Not a single person. Psalm 143 and 2. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, oh, for in your sight, no one living 
is righteous. I mean, it's sad that we're still quoting these things today in total disregard for what the cross has done. All of this was setting the stage for God's redemptive plan. So we're all sinful and guess what? Our initial sinful nature was a just imputation of God. God was right to think of us as sinners. We did not inform God we were sinners. God informed us. It wasn't you that informed God that you were a sinner as if God didn't know. It was God that informed you you were a sinner as though you didn't know. Because you didn't know. Because you're not all-knowing. And right now, a dead man does not know he's dead. Even physically. Fight over the corpse. A dead man doesn't care where you bury him. He can only hope that you follow his dying wish if he had one. But if he desecrated his dying wish, he doesn't know. My father said, I should wear this shirt every Sunday for one year. That was his dying wish before he died. Praise God for you and your father. But if you change that shirt on Sunday, your father does not have a clue. Because the dead are dead. Are you now? Can you see why you need to wash your head? So God had to inform you that you were dead. So guess how we became conscious of our sin? The faith of God. It is by his faith that he told you justifiably the sinner. The sinful nature of man is not by the man's conviction. The sinful nature of man is by God's conviction. In other words, only God imputes sin. Do you understand that now? Man cannot impute sin. It is in God's righteous justice system that he imputes sin to you. It's, it's, it's in God's righteousness that he says you, are, you, are, you have sinned. So who established what sin was? God. It had to precede what he would give and never take away. We'll get there. You know, God gives you something that he will never take away. But before he does that, he gives you something that is a type of what he would never take away. And he will take it away when his job is done to give you what then he will never take away. That's the entire scriptures. There's always two things. One as a precursor to the other. One as a leading to the other. So he imputes sin to you first. But sin is not forever. So contrary to popular opinion, it is by the faith of God that we became aware of our sin. Does that make sense now? It's God's conviction. Is God imputing it to us and he's right and just in doing that. Are you here? Psalm 40, Isaiah 45 and 21. God is right and just. 
So if you're on the wrong side of God, he will inform you that you're on the wrong, wrong side of God. So he says, tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? In other words, isn't it I the Lord that has said it? And then he says, there is no other God besides me, a just God and a savior. There's none besides me. So you see how God puts the two side by side. A just God, a savior. And this is God introducing himself. There's none besides me. Just God. He's just. Mm -hmm. And in his justice, he must impute sin. Where he sees it. Do you understand that now? So I put here, we were charged as guilty. Because that's God being just. We were charged as guilty and therefore we are guilty as charged. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. You were charged as guilty. You were told you're guilty. And because you were told you're guilty, you're guilty as you were told. You don't have to feel guilty. So you can be walking around the earth, you know, feeling like Job. Job just hears that his children are going to gather in the house of one of their brothers. Job chapter 1. And as he hears that they are going to gather and have a party in the house of one of their brothers, he just perceives that mm, there's no how these children will gather in their brother's house that they will not say or do something that will be sinful. So while they are going to have the party in one of my other children's house, let me give them a sacrifice. Just in case they sin, so that by the time they sin, there's already a sacrifice on the altar speaking. For That's how righteous Job was. In fact, he was walking around and God even said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none as meek as him in all the earth? And you think that God was commending Job. No, God was setting Job up to see how nonsensical his righteousness was. So by the time God was through with him, every filthiness of the flesh would have been killed. Why will these all die not having obtained the promise? So you're walking around and feeling like, ooh, I got this. I got this. I don't feel guilty. Hey, the just judge says you are guilty. So whether you feel it or not, you're guilty. Moses will argue with God. Stubborn guy. To the point where this God said to Moses, speak to the rock. Moses in anger struck the rock and water came. And not just that, Moses equated himself to God and says, shall we give you water from a rock? Yeah. 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 Can you imagine the heart of pride? Because the first time you brought water out, now they're angry like, ah, shall we give you water? You know what Moses did at that point? He equated himself to the saving grace of God. When he said, shall we give you water? So him and God partner together to supply water, to give the, the spirit to men. So the water that was coming 
was the water from God and from Moses. God said, that, that was what cost Moses. You know, that's when God told him, you know, no, 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 no. Okay, this, you're coming home. You see the promised land. You will enter it. Your journey ends here. Shall we give you water? So now it's you and God supplying water. So God said, no, that, no, 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 that's it. I know you're a type and everything. You're, but that's who you are. Yeah. Nothing more. All you are is a type. Yes, sir. Shall we? So he was recalled. God buried him himself. By himself. No trace. Joshua comes. Even when Moses is in the tabernacle, Joshua is at the entrance of his own tent, observing the tabernacle and watching Moses. Numbers 2010. So, so I need to show some of you that, that text. Numbers 2010. You see it out there. Moses and Aaron gathered their assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Must we? Joshua is watching. See, okay, I'm trying to, you know, you know how sometimes I go into something, but it's not exactly what it is. But if you put that text back up, 2010, 11. Sometimes I say things and it sounds like, okay, are you sure? Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly. Abundantly, oh. And the congregation and their animals drank. But see verse 12, see God's response to that. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me. To hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land. Water came. Abundantly. Abundantly. Because people want to partner with God. You know, Moses and Aaron are now the source of water with God. Earlier on you see where the cloud comes upon the tabernacle of Moses. You see that Joshua the son of Nun is sitting in front of his own tent. Watching what is going on in the tabernacle of God. So Joshua had understood Moses long before God told Moses to take off his spirit and put on Joshua. This teaches for another day. Scripture says Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, will sit at the entrance to his own tent and be watching what's going on in the tent of the Lord. Every time the cloud came, every time God spoke with Moses, Joshua was watching. Long before, in other words, it was only natural progression for God to tell Moses to take off his spirit and put upon Joshua. Now, Joshua observed all the pitfalls of Moses and therefore did not repeat the mistakes that Moses made. In fact, Joshua completed everything that God had told Moses. He brought them into the land, distributed the land among the tribes, did all of that stuff, won all the rest of the battles in the actual, because Moses did not actually fight in the land of Canaan. Yeah, Moses stopped at Jordan. And Canaan starts just as you cross Jordan. That's where the land of Canaan starts. Yes, sir. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. Only Joshua crossed. Yes, sir. And fought all the remaining wars. And conquered and subdued all the territories. And handed them to the tribes. So Joshua avoided Moses' pitfalls. 
So you can say Joshua followed God in, as it were, uh, more righteously than Moses did. Well, you could say that Joshua did not put his own foot wrong by himself. Besides the times where the Gibeonites deceived him. You know those rascals <laughs> that lived in the backyard <laughs> and took very old bread and put dirt on themselves and they said, we come from a far country enter a covenant with us. And they entered a covenant with them and then the king was fighting them and they lived just in the back. <laughs> and Israel had to go defend them. Point I'm making here with this story is that Joshua dies. Good guy. Compared to Moses. Very good guy. You never see Joshua fighting with God. Like Moses. One occasion, the pre-incarnate Lord appeared before him. And Joshua pulled his sword. He said, who are you? Are you for us or against us? And the Lord said, I am neither for you or against you. As captain of the Lord's host, have I come? Joshua worshipped. Meek guy. Meek guy. He learned from Moses' mistakes. He lived well. Fulfilled his assignment. Fulfilled his destiny. And Joshua died. And Satan came to contend for his body. That's where I was going. Satan believed he had reason to contend for Joshua's body. Joshua. Jehoshua. As righteous as he was, he was a type, so he was not the righteous. Same name. Because he was a type. That's why Jesus, Jehoshua, Hamashiach now, is called the captain of our salvation. Because who brought that to light in the scriptures? Joshua. As a type of Jesus. Moses started the journey. Joshua completed it. Adam started the journey. Jesus completed it. So yes, his name was Joshua. Yes, it was a type. But I've explained to you that every type and shadow in the scriptures is flawed. Because they are not the substance. So Satan showing up to drag for Joshua's body was reminding you that at the height of your righteousness, you're guilty. Now, a man who was humanly flawless needed divine intercession when they came to contend for his body. So you're walking around like, no, I, I, like the publican in the story that Jesus told. I pray three times a day. I give alms to the poor. You know, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I don't womanize. I don't manize. Because you can't keep saying I don't womanize for the men. What about the women? There's women that manize. Yes. Oh, yes. Fine boy comes into church. You see all the ladies going towards the fine boy. He says, oh, you are sitting down here. They said, hug somebody to your left. You have traveled to. You're like, but that's my left now. Say, oh, you're new to church. You are a manizer. 
Yeah, so you know, I don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't gamble, I don't, you know, I don't womanize, or, you know, I pray five times, I speak in tongues, I'm a demon casting, tongue talking, Jesus loving, heaven chasing, born again Christian. I don't lie, I don't, you know. I was watching a video recently, I was speaking to somebody, we were having a chat, and I was telling her, I saw a video that disturbed me, about a man of God, mighty, mighty man of God. And he was saying that if you meet a lady, if you, ladies, if you meet a guy, and anybody's telling you that, that you cannot be perfect in this life, they are lying to you, run away from them. So I'm thinking, uh, sir, you are perfect. No, we understand because you are not perfect. So there are some things that we talk due respect, sir. You don't know because you are not perfect. Until we get to the day of the Lord. So we will understand. Do you understand? We honor you. We respect you. But it's not because we think that you are perfect, sir. But because in discerning the Lord's body, we appreciate that you may be weak in faith in certain areas and the Lord is working in us and sanctifying us and perfecting us. But the problem now is if you then think you're the one who's perfect. And everyone else not in your school of thought is imperfect. That is where you become imperfect. Because it is delusion to think that you are all that in the earth and you're still alive. And when you died, the grave could successfully keep you. Because hear me, the grave the grave cannot keep down a perfect man. The immediate reward for perfection is immortality. Does that make sense? There's no transition period. The second you are perfect, what immediately follows is immortality. You cannot, you cannot be perfect and stay in the grave. That's why anybody that dies goes to wait for us. Because I explained to you in church consciousness, he's coming for a body. And in this body, the hand cannot enter perfection. The hand is perfected, left the leg. The leg is perfected, like the nose. So we really must recon- carefully reconsider our theology. No, if you're perfect as you die, because of the, one of the first things that will happen to you once you're perfect is this earth will reject you. And as it rejects you, if the earth rejects you, how can the grave keep you? So the earth rejected you, you died because you're too perfect for the earth. But then you are, you are successfully in the grave? No, 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 no. As you die out of too much perfection, you are immediately in God's presence. So see, perfection is the exclusive work of God. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That he, he, 
might present her yes, to himself yes, a bride without spot, blemish, or any such thing. Only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus can do it. He's the one that has the manual of what he's perfecting you to be. A guy is about to take a lady to his parents for the first time. And you show up. And he sees the dress and he says, babe, you know, you look very hot. You know, I don't, I'm, not, I'm trying to find who. You look very hot. You like the sleet and everything is beautiful. But you say, but you know, my mom is, is deeper life. Now, he knows his mom. You are just about to meet her. Auntie, you cannot start educating the bobo. You see, no, your mom shouldn't mind now. Eh? Eh, these things are type and shadows. <laughs> when the substance is here, your relationship will remain in types and shadows. <laughs> you will never see the substance. <laughs> you come out pure and holy. You stand before the girl's father and you see, sir, the things that are seen are temporal. <laughs> so the scriptures say we walk by faith and not by <laughs> You would, you would, you would, you would clean up. You would. But if you're perfect, the grave cannot keep you. Count. The immediate, immediate, immediate reward for perfection is immortality. Immediate. Why do you think scripture will be saying things like the dead in Christ shall rise first? Maybe who are alive? will join them. Nobody's going before the other. If you are in heaven, how come the dead in Christ are rising first? Check, you are in heaven now, so why are you rising? Oh, you are in heaven. You are not coming down from heaven to come and rise. Is God not dumb? Is God not dumb? What kind of dumb, what kind of dumb God is that based on logistics? Based on, literally based on logistics. Huh? You are in heaven. At the right hand of Abraham. Who is not in... Okay. okay. Because I've spoken to you in this church about Abraham's bosom. And what I think about it. And then you are in heaven. Then it's time to rise. Will not dispatch you from heaven back into the grave. So you can do opening ceremony of FIFA. FIFA World Cup. Because you're already in heaven. What are you coming back down to be resurrected from again? But if the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we who are alive shall be caught up with them to meet him. Because the dead in Christ are dead. 
Just that that deadening is in Christ. So the day that he calls, the spirit depositing them. Who respond? So you have to be careful with our so-called righteousness. You don't insinuate that you can be perfect in the earth because you don't raise your voice. Do you realize that there are things that you saw you didn't plan to see? Talk to me now. You didn't plan to see. So you, you cannot boast and say, I didn't see anything evil. So, some things saw you. <laughs> okay, yeah, you didn't see them. Yeah, 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 but. And literally, you go through your day washing your eyes. You go through the day washing, washing your eyes. And so, so what do you think? That your righteousness is because you said known and unknown. Conscious and unconscious. Willing and unwilling. No. It's not of him that willeth or runneth. So God that shows mercy. So, so you, you, don't have to, you don't have to feel guilty. As a sinner to believe. You know, self-righteousness is horrible. It's easier to preach the gospel to somebody who knows he's messed up. And to someone who's convinced, but I'm a good girl. I am. I'm a good boy. I don't understand what you're talking about. What I'm talking about is that God says you're a bad girl. How can I be bad when I've not done anything bad? He, you became bad by agreeing to be born. <laughs> they say, push, push, you came outside. You didn't stand out, spread your hand inside there, say, I'm not coming out. I'm too good for this world. I'm a good girl. I refuse. I refuse to be corrupted. I will not be corrupted. Push now. Push now. Take me back. This world is not my home. <laughs> you came out. The moment you became a seed that started to grow. You already you're corrupt. You're corrupt. She said, no, no, no. I don't want to breathe their air. No. I'm not of this world. I'm from above. <laughs> God's faith informed you of your sin. So you see the uh, whatever it helps. So you see that um, <laughs> hey, you know I told you like twenty minutes ago that he'll give you one thing. He will take it away, so that he will give you what he will not take away. So looking at it critically, critically, who did sin consciousness come from? Let me go ahead of myself and tell you something. Do you realize that Satan did not start to tell you a sinner until you became a believer? Why? Why did Satan never tell you you were a sinner when you were a sinner? Because the initial sin consciousness could not come from Satan. 
the sinner is of great benefit to the father of all liars. Yes, sir. The unbeliever is of great benefit to Satan. He's the prince of this world. And a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. Satan is not going to come and make you realize you're wicked. No, your wickedness is helping his ministry of wickedness. Satan will never tell you that you're a sinner. As a sinner. Because for Satan to tell you you're a sinner is for Satan to set you up to be saved and then hell lost another one. So really, sin consciousness as a precursor for righteousness consciousness. Sin consciousness had to come before righteousness consciousness. You had to acknowledge that you were a sinner needing saving in order to be saved. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, John 14, he will convict the world of sin. So who convicted the world of sin? God. Who informed the world there were sinners? God. Where did sin consciousness come from? God. Did he intend for it to last forever? So we must understand moves and dispensations of God and bury what God has buried when God said he has buried it. In, in explaining the character of God, we must understand that we don't have to demonize what God did. It's like saying the Lord did not come from God. It's because we have no understanding. Because the Lord came from him. It would be very irresponsible of God to sit down and angels sat together and coupled 623 laws and gave to God's people that God chose and God does nothing about it. But he Decides, as they said, to punish an angel who thought in his heart that he will ascend to the hill of God. He could punish a thought. But could not arrest mutiny in the heavenlies. That angels will sit down and gather over 600 laws and bind his people to them. And God just allowed it for the thousands of years that he did. Then we should be serving the angels that gave the law. So God does things, but God is dispensational. He's not one dimensional. He is dispensational. In his eternal prophetic agenda, he does a thing in a dispensation. Does that make sense? For an eternal purpose. So who informed you that you were a sinner? Put that scripture up in John 14. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. John 16. So who convicts the world of sin? By his spirit. Satan will not tell you as a sinner. As a sinner. And so, this, and this is where I'm going to. If I get there. This is why when now you are a believer. You start hearing you are a sinner. You don't need a prophet to tell you. Who is speaking. Yes. 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 
You don't need exegesis. You don't need a deep teaching. Now that you are a believer, a voice starts to tell you you are not righteous. You should know who is speaking. Why didn't he tell you when you were still a sinner? Why? Because he, the moment he saves you, sin consciousness dies. Sin consciousness was a dispensation to bring you into righteousness. The moment you receive righteousness, the dispensation changes. All God now starts to speak over you is righteousness. Therefore, if you are hearing the voice of sin, it is not the voice of God, even though he used it in the past. To inform you that you needed him so that you will receive him. Now that you have received him, why is he torturing you as though you have not received him? So it ought to be another voice telling you, are you sure you have him? It cannot be he who died for you that you may receive him telling you, are you sure you have me? That means he is not even sure of the quality of his own work. He's not sure of the quality of his work. Are you sure you have received me? God will not speak like that. Or else he cannot in Christ be the yes. And amen. All God's promises cannot then be in Christ, yes, and amen. Is it helping anybody? So, who informed you that you were a sinner? Mm -hmm. You were charged as guilty and therefore you're guilty. As charged. I wrote here. In God's love, you hear this line carefully. In God's love, his righteousness will not allow his mercy allow you to get away with sin. God is love. Everything about him is love. In his love, his righteousness will not allow mercy to write off your sin as a bad debt. In his love, his righteousness will not allow his mercy dismiss your sin in one act of benevolence and goodwill. Because what that does, you see, the, the, just, the, just, the justice dimension of your salvation was not just to save you, but to also silence the accuser of the brethren. Yes, sir. Does that make sense? Yes, the, the, the price for your sin wasn't paid to the accuser of the brethren, but he was factored into the price. Yes, so that he has no right to come and, 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 and draw a charge against the Lord's elect after they've been saved. Because you see, salvation and justification are two different things. Salvation is, okay, you're not a sinner anymore. Go and, and sin no more. But then you go out and you sin and Satan comes right back. You paid the price. You, you forgive them for yesterday's sin. They've sinned today. Now, are you going to and this conversation will be taking place at the throne of grace. Yes, yes, yes. So, are you going to now die for them again? I just came to find out what your plans are yes. so I can know how to approach this dynamic. So, you died for their sins. Yes, all well and good. We all, I lost that one. You know, yeah. I'm a good sport. I lose gallantly. But now they've sinned again. How do you intend to pay for this one? Since we both know that that price... Did not cover this one. And they've sinned again. And I, I, I knew it. I knew they were sin. You're the one that trusts them as much as you do. We are the prince of this world. We and them, we roll all the time. 
And so are you going to die again or what's, what's up now? Now, so to prevent these kind of conversations, God justified you. Justified you means that you can never be brought back to that court over the crime for which we punished Jesus. Ever. Now, so it's, it's not your salvation that troubles Satan as much as your justification. Yeah. It's not your salvation that troubles him so much. It's that justification, that the, the, the frustration it ministers to him. That he knows he will keep coming every day, but he knows the verdict is final. So it was on account of this that God allowed his righteous justice to walk in line with his mercy and his love. Because if we are just blown away your sins, Satan would have reason to come back when you sin again. Does that make sense now? So to ensure that your salvation, the forgiveness of your sin is eternal, he took the justice path. Which is the longer route. Yes. You could have just said, you know what? I forgive you. Yes. Write it off. Yes. But you see, the person whose debt was written off has gotten into debt again. Yes. Those dodgy phone apps you use to collect money. You collected the money, you got into trouble. They chased you around, they put you off, putting you on WhatsApp. You know, this would are very nasty. So and so person is a thief and a robber. They've run away with our company money. You see them. And then eventually the Lord delivered you. You now paid. Uninstall that app. And installed another one. Ah. Something's wrong with you. So the fact that your debt was cancelled doesn't mean you will not get into another one if we leave you. So in God's love, he takes the justice path so that he not only deals with your debt, pays it in full, but he pays such an overpayment, such an overpayment that you can never be able to even get to a point where you are owing again. That's why he didn't excuse your sin. Because you know sometimes when you're teaching the gospel, you can, you can, you can come across certain questions. Like why is God so wicked that he had to kill Jesus for me? Oh, yes. If you have not met them, you will meet them. If you have not met them, it's the Lord that kept you away from them until I teach it. (laughs) But it's one of the questions you will encounter a lot when teaching the gospel. Somebody will just wake up, feel sorry for Jesus, and hate God. I mean, what did Jesus do? He seems like a nice guy from all you have said. Decent dude, God just gets up and decides for me to kill him. So God couldn't forgive me without killing that nice guy. And then this unbeliever starts speaking for Jesus and starts to drive a beef between Jesus and his father. What kind of father is that? Hashtag I stand with Jesus. Stand with Jesus. 
Hashtag unkill Jesus. And when you meet people like that, you, what would you say? Because they have a valid point. Why would he please God to bruise him? Why? 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 Now you understand, it's not just the salvation element, it's not just the forgiveness of sin element, it's the justification element. Such, such a payment that there is, is ne- never ever going to be a record against you. That's why sin was punished. Not excused. Does that make sense? The wages of sin is death. Not mercy. I'm not sure if the church is ready, ready for this. The wages of sin is not mercy. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it must die. Must, must. Because sin came from death. So when sin comes from death, it can only end up in death. By one man came sin, and from sin, death. And therefore, how it dies, how will sin terminate? Death. Full circle. Sin must be punished. The wages of sin is death, not mercy. That's the justice of a holy God. Oh, yes. That's the justice of a holy, righteous God. Remember the righteousness of the gospel? But thankfully, in all God's righteousness and justice, he had a plan. And the plan kicked in immediately, man fell. Immediately. No, there, was no, that's, there was no transition period. In the moment God showed up, located man where man fell, he introduced Jesus. Instantly. It didn't take him by surprise. Genesis 3.15. Instantly. Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and instantly as though from the blues between your seed and her seed. Look at the S. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, fallen man, and her seed. Capital S. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Instantly the seed of the woman is introduced right there in the garden and man fell. God was ready. And this seed of the woman will need to achieve two things. He will need to walk blameless as the first Adam should have walked. Because it takes a blameless Adam to produce blameless offspring. Adam ended up in blame. So everybody he began to give birth to was in blame. So this new guy would have to walk as blameless as the first guy should have walked. To qualify him to be the new progenitor. The one that starts to give birth again. To people who have new life. Two. This new guy will also have to be the perfect sacrifice. He will need to be tried, legally tried, for all the sins of the entire human race, past, present, future. And in this trial, we have to ensure that he is found guilty. The trial cannot be wrapped up until we explore every avenue 
to find him guilty. Do you realize that it was the most difficult thing for them to do with Jesus? To find him guilty. Do you realize that? Everywhere God is like, okay, yeah, here, here, guilt. He's, he's, he's without guilt. Oh, okay, let's go to Pilate. Pilate, they tried and tried and tried. Pilate is like, I see no wrong in him. The wife slept and even got, got a dream. And said, if you touch this man, you are killing an innocent man. Oh, God. He had to be found guilty. But he had to be, oh, Lord Jesus. He had to be found guilty as a perfect sacrifice. Because when he's found guilty and he's been killed, he's been killed in place of everybody else who should have been found guilty. So he has to be an acceptable sacrifice. Which was the difficult thing. How do you find a blameless lamb to be guilty? Does that make sense? Because the guilt now is the guilt that is upon him. The Lord has laid upon him, Isaiah 53 and 6, the iniquities of us all. Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. All. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But he himself was blameless. He was not guilty who needed to be found guilty. He needed, to, he needed to be tried with all our sins for all eternity. And the outcome of this trial was that he be found guilty. And the sentence must be that he dies. Because the wages of sin is death. That was the plan. That's God's justice. He will need to be found guilty. He will need to be punished in full. God will need to punish him so badly and be satisfied to know he's punishing the sins of the entire world for all ages. God will need to be satisfied enough. God punished Jesus so badly he can't punish you. He punished him so badly he can't punish you. Because that cup was drunk in full. Nothing left over. So for that to happen, he as a blameless man, we need to carry our sin. Become our sin. Became our sin. A man had to pay the penalty. Why? Because it was through one man that sin came into the world. Romans 5, right? 12 to 19. So another man had to pay the price. Jesus comes. Born of a woman. Her seed. Remember Genesis 3.15? Her seed. Born of a woman, born as a man without the DNA of a man. Because as I said before, the DNA of a man in Jesus will plug him right back to the lineage of the fallen Adam. Same difference. Does that make sense? And so so sometimes I'm sitting and I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about as I prepare towards UTG Series 3, 
who is this Jesus? I sit down, I'm thinking about certain, certain concepts. And we champion Jesus as a man so much. So much. And he is. But how did he come about? His father is not a man. So yes, he's a man. But he's not a man. We are all being logical. If your biological, paternal parentage is not human. Because that's how you will argue so much for the manness of Jesus. That will make no sense. Because he doesn't have a physical father. Joseph was not his father. Don't forget that. He had a natural mother, but he had no natural father. So calm down a little bit. So Jesus is man by miracle. Not by nature. You have pushed me into series three of UTG. Jesus is man by miracle. By the possibility of God. Not by the nature of biology and science. Does this make sense? He did not start off as man. He was son of God from the beginning. But he had no body now. If you agree that the word is the son who was there from the beginning as the logos of God, the essence of God, the image of God. If you agree that that logos being referred to is the son, then you have to admit that he existed before he was created. Because if he was created from the beginning, he should have been created as he appeared in the earth. He was not human from the beginning. Was he? No. Was he at the beginning? Yes. So no, it's not natural for Jesus to be a man. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not. Am I making sense to you? Is it natural? Your father is not a man. How shall these things be? Look one, seeing I know not a man, the power of the highest shall overshadow you, such that he that will be born will be called the son of God. The angel explained to, Joseph, to Mary the parentage of the child she's about to give birth to. Son of the his father is not a man. So don't, don't commonize the Humanity of Jesus. Don't commonize the humanity of Jesus. I won't join. I won't join. I won't join party with those. I won't. He's a man by miracle. And you know the funny thing, Victory. He's not the first. Angels Daniel showed up and ate with Abraham. Angels took on body. It's not the first time spirits were taking on body. 
It's not. Angels showed up in Sodom. Yes, sir. With human bodies that men wanted to rape. You don't see spirits. They showed up in Abraham's tent and ate with him. Manoah, Samson's father, received a word from the angel of the Lord. Who said, you know what, wow, sit here, let's bring a sacrifice. They brought a sacrifice and offered to the angel. Angels don't receive worship. Angels don't receive sacrifices. The angel of the Lord who came and he received the sacrifice, consumed it. A messenger doesn't do that. And so that's why Paul will make it clear in Galatians. I think it's 4, verse 4 or so. He says he was born under the law, born in due time, born of a woman. Showing you the miraculous element of it. What am I doing here now? Galatians 4, 4. Put it up. Galatians 4, 4. That's why I told you, be patient. It's line upon line. Be patient. Don't rush me in that. Just follow. Follow. Week after week. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. His own son. The son of God born of a woman. So let's be be careful of that New Testament theology that paints it as though God just took some random guy from Israel and then glorified him. Careful. Even if his father was a man, I mean, how do you explain a virgin birth if it truly is a virgin birth? What's normal about that? What's normal about a lady who has never had sexual intercourse taking in and being pregnant for a man? So yes, it is. Hear me carefully. It is. It is an immaculate conception. Oh, it is. Oh, it is. It is. It's an immaculate conception. How do you explain it? Jesus is man by miracle. By the possibility of God who can do all things. It's not just some Jew that was picked up in Israel, followed God after the order of Adam, first Adam, and then God glorified him. This is why this Jesus, who knew who his father was, at 12 years old, will look at Mary and Joseph. So why are you looking for me? Do you not know I was about my father's business? 12 year old boy. Knew that these human beings here were not his parents. And Joseph never said he, Joseph knew. Joseph, have you, go and read. Joseph never put mouth in Jesus' matter once. Once, if Joseph was his father today, take him to school, drop him in school, pick him up, you want to, in the night, you want to ease yourself, ease yourself. Yeah. And then Joseph is looking at him like, <laughs> yeah. see me looking after the son of God. So every time Jesus calls Joseph, Papa, pa- Joseph will be like, hey, Father Lord, forgive me. <laughs> forgive me my sins. <laughs> it's you that should warn him. Oh, no man take care this glory. I'm not trying to take your glory. <laughs> With you. Yo, if I was Joseph, I'll be walking in fear and trembling. Imagine Jesus did something naughty. 
And they come and report to Joseph. Joseph is like, don't worry, I'll deal with it. I'll deal with it. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And then when they leave, he's looking at Jesus. How will I flog the son of God? He was born son of God of a woman with no human DNA. That is important because have to, we have to establish that Jesus is without corruption. We have to. And the introduction of human DNA is the introduction of corruption. He cannot be a man without the corrupted nature of Adam. According to nature and science. So there had to be a miraculous intervention to make him a man, but of a different order. Because a man has to pay this price. But the man that can pay this price cannot come from Adam. Because then it cannot be a sacrifice. That's why we didn't collect Isaac. I mean, we took him as a type and everything, but but he's flawed. But this particular Adam has to be flawless and be the perfect lamb. And yet, as perfect as he is, he has to be found guilty. Has to be. He has to be. He has to be. So you are killing a righteous man as a guilty man who is righteous. Yeah, Jesus died twofold. He died because he was righteous in the fact that he was a perfect sacrifice and he died because he was guilty in that he took all our sins upon himself. He was both the sacrificial lamb and the scapegoat. The sacrificial lamb had to be perfect. The scapegoat carried all the sins of the world. It had to be. Jesus is a man by miracle. Not by nature. Donkeys can talk. Angels can cause people to go dumb and deaf. Red Sea, Red Sea can part. Jordan can stop flowing. Mountains can catch fire when God is trying to come down. And he's not God enough. To introduce celestial DNA. And you believe in science. And then we're here and atheists are cloning living beings. There's mutation of genes. There's all of that stuff going on now. There's harvesting of nerves and cells. But God, who calls the things that be not, as though they were, cannot engineer divinity in a man. Jesus is a man by miracle. And it's because he knew who his father was. Because you see, how God anointed Jesus, right? But Philippians says that he then exalted him and gave him the name. When was he exalted? Resurrection. Resurrection. His resurrection into immortality is him being exalted. Is that correct? 
That's when he became Lord. As we have heard. So in what capacity was he able to forgive sin before the cross? He was exalted after he resurrected. Hold on. In what capacity was he worshipped? Because he was a man. And not an exalted man. He was the carpenter. And they fell down at his feet and worshipped him. And scripture does not suggest, please, that they worshipped him as a judge. Or that they worshipped him as an archbishop. Or that they worshipped him as a rabbi. No, they worshipped him as deity. And he never stopped them worshipping. And he had not yet been exalted. The son of man has power to forgive sins. I and my father are one. He had not yet been exalted. He had not yet been exalted. He had not yet died. He had not yet received the glorified body. I and my father are one. Have I been here with you so long? Did you not know me? When we asked to show us the father. Let's see who has seen me. Me like this. Carpenter like this. Carpenter. I've seen the father. Not glorified. Yes, Jesus the man. But don't trivialize how he came about. So he stood trial as a man. Let me rush off. He was found guilty. Oh, hallelujah. He was found guilty. He was found guilty. Thank God Jesus was found guilty. Thank God. He was guilty of all our sins. When he stood trial, we stood trial in him. And in the instant he was found guilty, we were found innocent. In the same instant, he was found guilty, we were found innocent because an exchange had taken place. So we got saved. But not just saved. We got justified. An instantaneous act of God by which he reckons our sins forgiven. And the righteousness of Christ as fully belonging to us. And then we become righteous in his sight. We're discharged. Acquitted. With no criminal record. Isaiah 61.10. Isaiah 61.10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Our sins were not excused. They were not canceled as a bad debt. They were not let go as a benevolent act. They were punished because of the justice of God. Everything else we enjoy is a result of being reconciled to God. The act of Jesus' work on the cross justified us who believe, reconciled us to the Father, 
and made us righteous before him, made us blameless. So we are justified. Just as if I had never done anything wrong. So the price is paid. All of it. Hmm? All the price is paid. So to punish any more sin would be for God to be unfaithful. We forgot to be unfaithful. Mm. We forgot to be unfaithful. It will mean that his word cannot be trusted. Now, 8 and 12. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the guilt on Jesus. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Remember there is a word mimnesco. M-I-M-N-E-S-K-O. Mimnesco. And it means to consciously, consciously recall. Or to keep record of. So just, it's not just remember like some, oh, I forgot, oh, I remembered. No, that's not what it means in the Greek. Mimnesco means to consciously, it's like you sit down and you call a record to be made of something. Yeah, do you realize it actually takes a lot of vindictiveness to do that? Sit down, start to count. That's why it says love keeps no record of wrong. You then sit down, you now start to. And that's why one or two wrongs can obliterate a lifetime of good. Because you, didn't, you don't care about the record of good. You don't. You're just looking for that one wrong, two. Ah, that's it. And it wipes everything good a person ever did. That's not the spirit of God. Because God does not remember. God does not consciously call up what he has no record of. So it says there are lawless deeds and their sins I will remember no more. It means I will keep no record of. God did not hide something that he can pull out and use against you tomorrow. Oh, that's great news. Great news. Your ex can bring out something and say, look, see what he did. See what she did. Somebody can blackmail you with what they have on you. But your heavenly father did not keep anything that he can even use. Mimnesco. He doesn't have the ability to recall anything bad you did. He made sure of it. Made sure of it. And as the Lord helps me, I, 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 I want to be like my father so badly. Why would you be in love with someone and be storing what you can potentially need to use against them tomorrow? And you say you love or loved? Let me keep one or two things. I'm sorry. Two or three things. Just in case something goes south. So me too, I can have a joker to play. Say, yeah, pa, take that. Did you not? Did you not? 
That's a satanic, that's a diabolic expression. Diabolic expression. Anybody that does that should be actually questioned for their sanity. How much more their faith. Because you can't say you love someone and you have a plan in case you turn to hate. Yeah. Just in case they love sour. So just in case this love doesn't work out, I have reserved something I can use against you. Thank God, God no be mama. Because who else has bigger capacity to keep record? You would think you are righteous until you encounter the record keeper. For if the Lord shall count iniquity, who will stand? (laughs) Psalm 133, who will stand? Who will stand? If men are against you, God can be for you. If God is against you, If you, Lord, could should mark iniquities. Hey, oh Lord. <laughs> Who could stand? See the next verse. But there is forgiveness. God wants you to fear him. And, and he, he shows. God wants you to fear him. And what he chooses to show you so you can fear him. This shows people that forgive are not normal people. The God class. People that forgive should be feared. Fear them. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. It's forgiveness with you. For their lawless deeds and sins, I will mimnesco. I will, I cannot, I have nothing to play. God cannot come and say to you, last, you know, oh yeah, you're misbehaving, you're not, you're not praying anymore. Oh yeah, your, your spiritual life is waxing cold. Do you remember three years ago when you did? When you did this. And I did not judge you. That's how you would you mess up now. That judge I did not judge you. You must be afraid of somebody who doesn't come against you only because you are cool. 
the moment you are no longer cool, the same person, the same person that sang your praise, instantly develops love amnesia. And then boom, the same person will crush you because you're out of favor with them. And they do it speaking in tongues. Mm-hmm. And lawless deeds and sins, I will remember no more because you were justified. Not because you were forgiven. It's your justification that means that God has nothing, he has no need to keep anything he will use against you anymore because he will never ever again be against you. Never he will, so he doesn't need a backup plan. He doesn't. That's why he didn't groom two Jesuses in case one fails. This one that we are putting this Jesus now as a man. <laughs> Just in case. Micah. That was Psalm 103 verse 12. See, see verse 103, Psalm 103 verse 12. We're coming from Hebrews 8, 12, right? New Testament. Psalm 103 verse 12. 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression. From us. Micah 7, 18 to 20. Who is a God like you? Michael. Pardoning iniquity. And passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Look at this. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Next verse. Next verse. He will again have compassion on us and will what? You will? Verse 20. Keep going. You will give truth to Jacob and which you have sworn. That was Old Testament prophesying what you now have. He will give, he has given. He will cast, he has casted. That's my reality. That was Micah. Who is a God like you? I begin to ponder. I'm in awestruck wonder. What kind of God is this? Who is a God like you? Pardoning what lesser gods will kill. For giving millions of dollars when smaller gods are choking somebody for thousands of dollars. Who's a God like you? Choking people by the throat. Throw them in prison. You, God. Fear God. <laughs> Sin can never come between God and I. 
Say for yourself, one to go. Sin. Mm, he has justified me. He has justified me. He has declared us not guilty. Romans 8.33, TPT. Romans 8.33, TPT. Who then? TPT. Who then? Will dare to accuse those whom God has chosen in love to be his. God himself is the judge who has issued. seen it now sit down let me teach this message final verdict this is the problem now with the believer because this is contrary to your feeling it's contrary to your emotions it's contrary to your senses this is why this justification or this 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 affirmation of not guilty can only be received by faith because when you were a sinner you didn't feel it. It took God to minister to you by His Spirit who convicts the world of sin. It took God to minister to you that you were a sinner. You didn't feel like a sinner. By the time you started going to the club and feeling funny, God was already working in you. Talk to me now. You didn't start off feeling funny. No. If clubbing was your thing, you used to club. You meet a total stranger on the dance floor and you grind against the stranger. You do, and then nothing do you. You didn't, you didn't just get up and quit the club. No. Kind of go there and start to feel funny. I'm not. What's up with this? What's up with this? You go to that place where you hang with those guys and and get high, and after you start to feel funny. You're with that guy or with that girl, and you start to feel funny. Something's off here. Now it's because the Spirit of God was already working in you, priming you for salvation. Mm-hmm. priming you for salvation but you didn't start off feeling like you were a sinner you were convinced you were chopping life talk to me somebody now yeah you see you know 10 green bottles you know you were convinced that you were bawling you know some of you that have been on Instagram or Facebook long enough, if you go and check your feed, you see you posing with champagne, you posing, and then you were bowling. Now you are embarrassed by it. But then you were convinced, oh my God. You didn't feel like a sinner. 
In fact, people who were not doing what you were doing were dolly. Oh, Jugai, 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 Jugai. Why, why you be dolly? You didn't feel it. Until the Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, began to convict you of sin. You had no feeling of sin, but you were a sinner. The Spirit convicts you of sin. You receive righteousness. You receive justification. The Spirit that convicted you of sin, who informed you that you were a sinner, now informs you that you are not guilty. You want to feel it. Now, now, you won't feel them. But you, when you were a sinner, you didn't feel it. And it did not make you less a sinner. You were bowling, you were not feeling it, you were a sinner. You were bowling, you were not feeling guilty, you were a sinner. Until God showed up by his faith and informed you by his faith that you're a sinner. Then you get saved. Now he tells you, now, you are not guilty. You want to feel it. Okay, so you are saved now because you believed the gospel. But the person that saved you now tells you by my faith you are justified. You say, I don't believe it. How ironic can it be that a believer does not believe what God is saying over you? Because the same spirit that convicted you when you were in the world, he doesn't convict the church of sin. He convicts the world of sin. The church consists of those who were convicted in the world who have been saved and have become sons. There's no worldliness in the church. There might be carnality, but there's no, there's no worldliness. We are sons because you are sons. He has sent for the spirit of his son into our hearts. So now you are in the church. That same spirit that was working in the world is now working in you and says you are justified. You say, I don't believe it. But you believed you were a sinner when he convicted you. It was you believing you were a sinner that qualified you to receive salvation. Whose report did you believe when you heard that you were a sinner in need of a savior? The Lord's report. The Lord's faith. That was justified to tell you that you are a sinner. And now that you are no longer a sinner, he says to you, you are justified, you are not guilty. And you say, come on. I don't feel like I'm not guilty. That's why I must receive it by faith. And Satan doesn't like it. Because that's where you start to walk against his agenda. When you're justified. You're no longer on his side. That's when evil always comes for you. When you're no longer on its side. There was somebody you were cool with until you repented. There's somebody you were sleeping with and you guys were fine until you say I'm not doing it again. 
couple years. And they flip. Because that's how the father, the prince of this world, the father of all liars, that's how he is. He doesn't trouble you until he has lost you. The moment he establishes he has lost you, he can't have you, then he turns and starts to try to want to mess you up. Yeah, that's classic satanic ministry. Satan doesn't like this. So you're justified, which means not guilty, but that's when Satan starts to minister guilt to you. I'm not talking conviction. I've explained conviction. When he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I'm talking guilt. And here's how Satan does it. By blanketing you with heaviness for everything you ever did wrong. Now you have heard that he says your sins and lawless deeds he remembers no more. So besides even the faith thing, it's actually quite foolish. To hold on to what God has no recollection of. Minesco, God has no recollection. So you're the only one that is struggling with it. Your father has no... So if there's heaviness in the kingdom, you're the one that brings it in. Because as for his yoke, it's easy. As for his burden, it's light. So if there's, if there's heaviness in the church, you brought it in. And God is looking at you from a Mimnesco point of view. Hebrews 8 and 12, he remembers, no, no, this, none. He's cast them into the sea. So Micah said, as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed your transgression from you. That's what David said in Psalm 130. So when you are wearing upon yourself what God has no recollection of, can you see how foolish you look? And how much you hold yourself bound? And I know you have gotten used to it because that's all church knows to minister to you. And the church has learned how to minister the very thing that God came in Christ and took away. And our churches have become embassies of Satan. Embassies of Satan. We start to minister what Jesus himself came and took away. Who is he that condemns? It is the Lord that justifies. What Jesus took, we're ministering it back into the body. Killing the body from within. The same way politicians keep you poor so they can rule over you. It's the same way church has kept you bound so they can rule over you. Same way, same principle. Same principle, the same political principle at work. It's the same way. Because the less enlightened you are, the easier it is for us to subdue you and keep you in line. We don't want it to work. So we keep the people and we are able to control them. That's the power we have. The power of illiteracy. And that's the same thing the church is using. Same demonic approach cover the people don't show them light control them pray for them be their prophet be their prophetess be their papa collect their money 
Let them be subject to you. Let them grovel up to you to receive the mantle. Sleep with you to receive the power. Serve you to receive the grace. Pray for them so God can hear them. The God of. So now we become God and destroy people. And minister to them what Jesus on the cross took away. I come to remind somebody today the final verdict over your life. And let he who is offended be offended. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. So we now minister a blanket of heaviness that makes you feel heavy. Heavy. And yet you wreak havoc because you're trying to make up for the heaviness. You destroy lives because you're trying to make up for the heaviness. You make silly decisions. Many years ago, God asked me, he said, where have you seen where I permitted people to take a break from ministry because they were going through? I sat in my house, the Lord asked me that I felt so stupid. Where? You stop my work, your father. You stop my work because you messed up. So my work should stop in your hand because you don't feel good. What happened to the blood of my son? Oh, the blood of my son did not factor this scenario. You have to have your own heaviness in addition to the blood. So let me blanket you with heaviness for everything you ever did wrong. Here's the second dangerous one. How the enemy pros prospers guilt in the church. He teaches you to pick and hold on to the big sins while you let the small ones go easily. You, you lied. Oh, that's all right. So just a lie. You lied this morning. It's okay. You had an abortion eight years ago. Mm -mm. That's big. That's big. That's big. You cheated someone this morning. It's all right. When you were in cult in university, you and your cult members killed a couple of people. That's major. God doesn't just let that go easily. And who tells you that? The enemy. Because there were two thieves and murderers on the cross. And he said to him, today, I said to you today, you built me in paradise. Paul says, Christ came to save sinners, of which I am chief. Do you know how many believers Paul killed? Such that if anybody should be having sleepless nights, if anybody should be having the ghosts of people visiting him, if anybody should be haunted by the lives he took, on a daily basis, it should be Paul. Paul was so notorious that when he became a believer, Jerusalem was afraid. Paul, that was collecting letters from the chief priests to go and kill people who believed in Jesus. Letter from the high priest of every synagogue. God came to save sinners of which I am chief. Because if his blood in that era, no, no single human being 
shed as much blood as Paul. No single person committed as much atrocity as Paul. Young man, barely 20, he sat there and the clothes and the cloaks of people are surrounded him. The people that were stoning Stephen to death. Heaven opened. God spoke over Stephen. Speaking, Stephen spoke to the Lord. And a young man stood there supervising while they stoned him to death. Shortly after, that same young man is preaching the same gospel on steroids. Same gospel. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, Paul is confessing now, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. That's your apostle of the grace of God. So you pick and hold the big scenes. You let the small ones go easily. You lied yesterday. You don't see the need to talk about it or make a big fuss about it. It's the person you slept with. That one is big. I must testify of it. I must, I must, yeah, are you listening to me? I gotta tell somebody I can't keep that to myself. It's too heavy. It shows you're walking in wickedness, not repentance. Because if you're repenting, every single thing you did wrong, talk about it or keep quiet. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, every single thing. Don't pick and choose. Every single person you slept with, come and talk about it. Yes, call them all by name. Every single person you stabbed or, or, or knifed, come and talk about it. Since we're all going to keep record of what God keeps no record of, bring all your record. Oh, oh, oh. Bring all your record. Or have none. As for me and my house, we have none. So the devil comes and says, you, he, you, you think God forgave that big one. And you are foolish enough to believe it. But it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save. Oh, yes. It takes a level of foolishness to believe God. It does, it does, it does, it does. It does. It does. Faith makes no sense. Now let me go to where I was going and end. So you pick the big things, you nurse them, you discard the small ones. And then guilt forms where Jesus took it away. Guilt is a sign of unbelief. It was by the faith of God you understood you were a sinner. Now by the faith of God you are told you are justified, you refuse. You instead decide to feel guilty. Guilt is a sign of unbelief. It means you don't believe God. Full stop. So if you can be successfully guilty as a believer, uh, 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 you are not a believer. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot. You cannot be a believer and being guilty. 
You cannot be in guilt and be a believer because you are showing that when God now ministered to you that you are righteous, you said to God, no, I'm not righteous. I am not worthy. Now, thanks to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has qualified us. No, you say, no, 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 no. I cannot be qualified. I, look what I did last year. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to approach you. And the church teaches it to you. The church preaches it to you. So something goes wrong, you run. Because you fear that when you come, you will pollute the church. The place where the word of God washes you. If church is really church, you should be able to stand out there in the spirit and see dirt going out the door as the word is being taught. If church is really church, you should stand out there in the spirit and all you see coming out there is dirty water. Dirty water in liters as the word of God is washing out impurities. It's not clean people that come in, it's dirty people are coming. The word of God washes them. And out there with the eyes of the spirit, you just see so much dirt leaving. And when you see the people leaving, you see a glow and a freshness and a warmness and a lightness. As they sit under the washing of the word. That's what church is. But if you're guilty, if you feel guilty, as a believer, you don't believe. Now here's the danger. Unbelief is blasphemy. That's where I was going. You see that blasphemy that scripture talks about? It is this. That blasphemy against the Spirit of God is this, is guilt arising from you. Matthew 12, sit down. Now, now I can teach and finish. I don't need much time anymore, I've made the point. Matthew 12, 31 and 32. This is why I take my time to teach. Matthew 12, 31 and 32. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Because again, you encounter this all a lot. What is that? How, how can sins be forgiven and this one is not forgiven? What is, what is actually blasphemy against the spirit? What is blasphemy against the spirit that God cannot forgive? But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. Either in this age or the age to come. Who is the son of man? Who is the son of man in this context? Jesus Christ. What then is blasphemy against the spirit? Before you answer, what's the ministry of the Spirit? John 15, 26. You must understand the ministry of the Spirit before you can establish what blasphemy against the Spirit is. 
John 15, 26. But when the helper comes, whom I shall send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of Jesus. So what is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit? To testify. What then will be blasphemy against the Spirit? Not believing the testimony of Jesus. Speak is from the word lego in the Greek. Against is the, from the word kara in the Greek. Lego means to speak conclusively. So Matthew 12, 31 and 32, he who speaks against. Yeah? Lego kara. L-E-G-O-K-A-R-A. Lego means to speak conclusively. Like you are, con eh, you are convinced what you have said is final. Now God's final verdict over you is not guilty because of the justification that the work of Jesus Christ did. You then get up and you, you speak conclusively. Kara, which is the word against, means to speak down on something, thus reducing its original value. So to speak against is to conclusively say that something is not as important as it actually is. To speak down on something. Kara also means in the Greek to take something from a higher place where it was and bring it down. Whoever takes the testimony of Jesus, which is the ministry of the Holy Spirit, from as high as it has been, as much as it forgave you, as much as it justified you, as much as it reconciled you, and bring it down to the point where you now feel guilty, to the point where you feel like you need to do something to add to it. Grace cannot help you. That is blasphemy against the spirit. You are saying the spirit of God is lying in what he's saying about Jesus. You are saying the spirit of God is lying when he says Jesus' blood did not take away all your sins. He took away the small ones, but he left the big ones. The church needs to repent in his understanding of salvation so we don't get into blasphemy. Because blasphemy is unbelief. You cannot be a Christian and blaspheme. You cannot be a Christian and blaspheme. Blasphemy. Blasphemia is the Greek word. Blasphemia. So instead of M-Y at the end, M-I-A. Blasphemia is the word blasphemy. And blasphemia means to be hesitant or to be sluggish in acknowledging that something is true. Something is true, you are, you are sluggish. Because you know that once you admit that it's true, you have to abide by the fact that it is true. And then you have to see the evidence of that truth in your life. So blasphemy is to be sluggish to admit that something is true. And it also means when you switch wrong for right, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. 
Lastly, it means to speak injuriously. This is the one that messed me up. To blaspheme is to speak injuriously. In other words, to speak in such a way that spoils the good name of God. All of God's power is established in what, precious? His ability to save. All of God's boast is in salvation. To come out and say that salvation as God did it in Christ was not enough is you putting a dent on God's good name. Blasphemia. Is you speaking in such a way that tarnishes God's image, God's eternal boast. With you there is salvation. Who takes away their transgressions as far as the east is from the west? Cast their care sins into the sea of forgetfulness. All that good boast of God. Each time you walk in guilt, you believe that what Jesus did is a lie. Therefore, what the Holy Spirit is testifying is a lie. And therefore, the Father who sent him is a lie. There's no hope for you. Because the grace of God is the hope that he gives you for salvation. That's blasphemy. See, your entire faith, your entire salvation is hinged on you believing that your sins were forgiven. Forget the feeling. Forget the feeling. Your eternity is contingent on you believing how far the work of Jesus went in your life. For you to hold back a, a sin that you committed, for you to hold back a thing you did wrong, and for it to worry you to the point where it affects you, is for you to reduce from a higher place the salvation of God and bring it down because of how you are feeling. So you have elevated your feeling above God's eternal plan. And unfortunately, the church wants you to come down from where Jesus is and come down to where they are because the church wants to be higher than where Jesus is. Does that make sense? So the institution called church or Christian religion is designed to walk in perpetual blasphemy. Institutionalized religion, institutionalized Christianity is why it's walking in blasphemy in a straight line. That means where guilt exists in a setup, God is not in the setup. Where guilt is ministered in a setup, grace is not in that setup. Now, I don't care if you built an empire around it. I don't care if you have succeeded in it for 50 years. You cannot champion the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and champion guilt which lets somebody know that. Careful with this one, you are saying, Jesus, forgive. Careful, careful, careful. Careful with this one. You messed up last year, you are smiling, you are lifting up hands. You're joining people to laugh. You're joining people to sing. 
you even have mouth to preach. You are still singing. I've exchanged the truth. Because if he says he has cast it into a sea, if he says as far as the east is from the west, if he says he remembers them, has no record of them, who is he that lays a charge against the Lord's elect? So here's what happens to you when you find yourself walking in guilt. You have traded your salvation. Oh, it's serious. It's serious. It's serious. It's serious. You have traded your salvation. You have convinced yourself God could not save you enough. And the sad thing is you can't even save yourself in, in opposition or in, uh, apart from God. It's not like, okay, God cannot help you. You can now make up for it. You don't believe that God can save you and there's nothing you can do to save yourself. How do you expect them to be saved? Guilt is not a weapon God uses. Yes, sir. This is guilt, unbelief. It's a sin you take upon yourself. Take your seat, sit down. Hebrews 10, 26 and 29. I'm almost done. 26 to 29. Hebrews 10. Unbelief will make sense now. Because you realize that the issue here is do not say that you are seeing your sins are eternally forgiven. Don't say that. Yes, That's the issue. Yes, don't say that God will not hold my sin against me. Don't say that. God should hold some sin. Hebrews 10, 26 to 29. For if we sin willfully, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What remains is a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. On the testimony. Wait, go back. On the testimony. Moses was testified of. And you rejected the testimony of Moses. From two or three witnesses. You died. Not for rejecting Moses. For rejecting the testimony of Moses. Somebody validated Moses. You rejected it. A second person, perhaps a third person. You rejected it. You died. Without mercy. Just for rejecting the testimony of Moses. Now the spirit comes and he will testify. John 15, 26. He will testify of me, Jesus says. You died not receiving the testimony of Moses. How much more? Hebrews 10, 28. Die without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. 29 and the last verse for this text. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled upon the Son of God underfoot? Look at this. Emada counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Stay here. Stay here in 29. Give me TPT or NLT. How much more severely do you suppose a person deserves to be judged who has contempt for God's son and who scorns the blood of the new covenant that made him holy and mocks 
See, if God believes you are justified, yes, it is in your interest to believe what God believes. It's not a cute message. It's not a feel-good message. I am justified. I'm telling you, your eternity depends on it. Where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. No, no, not this sin. This sin is crucial. This one is too deep. I need to, I need to lean into this one a little bit. Give us another translation. That was CPT, was it? Give us the message. 29. What do you think will happen if you turn on God's son? Spit on the sacrifice that made you whole. And insult this most gracious spirit. Because that is you pulling down the high place of the testimony of Jesus, which is the ministry of the spirit. Now, if it is the spirit that convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, to blaspheme him will be to speak against him, which will be to say conclusively that he has nothing to offer. How then can you be saved? How do you receive salvation? How can grace help you? When the culmination of grace is the spirit that you have just said cannot help you. So every time you retain guilt, you are telling yourself, he get where the blood no reach. Each time you retain guilt as a believer, you are saying, I don't believe. You are saying, let's not trust the blood too much. And that's how we can have confidence in the blood. We get, we get, we get a bit cocky. You know, we get a bit overconfident that the, the blood, no, don't trust the blood of Jesus so much. I mean, you, you, must, you must feel bad every now and again. And you, have, you, you agreed his faith when he said you were a sinner. But you can't agree his faith when he says you're justified. Guilt condemns you. It renders you unworthy of all God in Christ has done. That makes you feel like for absolution. You know what absolution is? When you have to do something to feel like you have tried to better your problem. You try to do something to make it look like you have atoned. And that's what guilt pushes you into. I read a story, a very sad story of a lady who had whatever she had or said she had a while ago with a, with a pastor. And she came out with all guns blazing and kicking and did a lot of damage and she said that when she was done with all of that she felt no fulfillment so she thought that since her life had changed so much she would get married instead even though before then she didn't have marriage on her on her mind but after having done all that and having raised all the dust she raised worldwide she said oh, maybe she should get married and she got married and her marriage didn't last three years or four years and she said from the very beginning she knew that this was a mess. But she felt like she did that because she, she was trying to fill a void. After trying to fill a void. After trying to fill a void. After trying to fill a void. That's guilt. It makes you feel like you will not have inner peace until you do something. Say something. 
wreck something. So, guilt makes you feel like in order to get absolution, you must do something. Penance. You must say something. Confession. You must give something. Indulgences. Whip yourself. And every time you whip yourself, you are insulting. Every time. God takes it personal. Takes it personal. An eternal plan to bring his son. It's bruised for our infirmities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And you dare bring your back. You dare bring your back. You dare bring your body. You dare bring your works. And say you are trying to please God. You piss him off. him off. Every time you beat yourself up, you piss him off. Every time you drag yourself and put yourself down, you make a mockery of what Jesus did. How dare you? Perfect sacrifice offered up once for all. Pleased God. He pleased God. God saw your back and chose the back of Jesus. He saw your mess and decided to put it on Jesus. He saw you were guilty and decided to punish it on Jesus. He knew you were a man and yet he chose a different kind of man. Then he brings him miraculously. Jesus became a man by miracle. Brings him and is crucified. He's beaten, dragged. And then you now bring your own back and say, flog me a little too. I feel so bad about this particular one I did wrong. I'm not sure if the whipping on Jesus paid for this one. I feel so terrible about this thing I did that I'm not sure if the bleeding out of Jesus paid for this one. I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I know know he was bruised. but you don't understand God how bad I feel you don't understand how much I want to repent and I want to feel like I'm doing something to contribute and you feel like you should do something you feel like you should say something and so the, the church set up speaking centers you can come in and confess to a man So you feel better. <laughs> you end up feeling worse. See, be careful when any thought or anybody sells to you a solution that is beyond what God offers. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because Christianity is based off of cheap solutions. Yes, sir. Supplements, remember? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Cheap solutions. Think that something has not been washed in the blood because you have not talked about it. 
The difference between salvation and psychology. Because if, if you are still dealing with it and dealing with it until you say something or do something, the blood did not do anything. That's what you're saying. Oh yes, that's what you're saying. And then you must give something. Indulgences. Romans 11 and 6. It is eternally dangerous to find yourself in guilt. Yes, sir. Eternally. It's dangerous. From today, listen. You see the way we talked about witches last week? That's where you must kill doubt and, and guilt. Is that God is true or he's not? And he has judged himself faithful and true. And if it is faith I have, <laughs> then I am not guilty. You cannot pacify a guilty mind with any amount of good deeds. Once you are guilty, you cannot pacify yourself no matter how much remedial good you do. In fact, it widens the chasm. It widens the vacuum. It makes it much bigger. The emptiness increases. The emptiness increases the more you try to do good to correct a bad. You know why? Because God does not demand effort. God demands perfection. All you have done, all you have said, all you have given is just effort. And God will never accept effort as a sacrifice for sin. God will only accept perfection. So no matter what a fallen man does, he cannot pacify God. Because all a man does ends up being effort. When God needed the price for your sins to be paid, he didn't go for effort. He didn't go for who could die best. (laughs) He didn't go for who could live the best. He went for perfection, not effort. Effort has never brought about sanctification. Only perfection, only that perfect lamb slain once for all the sins of the world. So every time you are doing, that's, that's you running around like a hamster on a wheel. Running around like on a treadmill. You have run five kilometers. You're still on the treadmill. Five kilometers, ten kilometers, you're on the same spot. Doesn't amount to anything. Romans 11.6, I mentioned it earlier. Guilt cannot lead to repentance. Because works can never bring about salvation. Guilt cannot bring about repentance. Just like works cannot bring about salvation. Guilt cannot bring about repentance. Just like works cannot bring about salvation. Your being guilty does not, it's not an ingredient God uses. Your guilt is not an ingredient that God uses. I'll be God partnering with you. 
can, shall we bring water out of a rock? Shall we bring water out of a rock for you? Shall we? <laughs> As you partner with God to save you. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace cannot be said to be grace. <laughs> and if by grace, then it is no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, repentance is not for access to forgiveness. Repentance is not for access to forgiveness. Repentance is a response to the forgiveness we have received. Now, that your mind has a problem with you doesn't mean God has a problem with you. God doesn't have a problem with you because your mind does. That's why it's important for you to renew your mind and let this mind which was in Christ Jesus To let the mind of Christ be in you. You have to let the mind of Christ be in you. So that your mind is messing you up doesn't mean God is messing you up. That your mind is judging you doesn't mean God is judging you. Once you feel judged, it is not God. There's therefore now no condemnation. So your, your mind is messed up. That's why you need to renew your mind. Wash your mind. Allow the word of God to wash your mind. God is not having a problem with you because your mind does. Yes. Believe God's faith. Tell your neighbor, believe God's faith. faith. Tell the other neighbor, refuse the guilt. Refuse the, refuse the, condemnation. Refuse the condemnation. Accept the mercy. Accept the forgiveness. Accept the grace. And walk in that consciousness. Put your hand on your chest and say, over my life, the verdict is final. And will, never change. and will never change because of Jesus, because of Jesus. And, the and the work he did and the far-reaching consequence, and the, far-reaching consequence. The, verdict over my life remains. the verdict over my life remains you better shout it well that's it for today's teaching we trust it has been worth your time For more of these messages from our stables, kindly subscribe to our teaching podcast at www.thebasileacommission.podbean.com or via the Podbean app on your mobile device. For inquiries and further information, kindly send us an email to info at thebasileacommission.org or find us on social media with the handles at the truth simply put or at whathechurch. You can also send us an SMS, call us, or connect with us via WhatsApp on plus 234-70-881-8864. Finally, if you would like to give to support the work that we do, kindly follow the Patreon link in our podcast or contact our office for details. Thank you.